Hey, peace and blessings to you. My name is Jerry B. I am the Entree Musician and so are you. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Entree Musician Podcast. This is the space where we concentrate on the mindset, discipline, and focus of the Entree Musician. And this episode is no exception. It is my honor and my privilege to bring to you a wonderful conversation I had about a year ago with the legendary Chris Jasper, formerly of the Isley Brothers, the iconic Isley Brothers who ruled the 70s and the 80s with song after song, hit after hit. Chris has been an incredible solo artist in his own right uh, for the past 20, 25 years or so, but it is definite that the time that he really helped to change R&B music specifically, soul music especially, was the time that he was writing and recording with and performing with the Isley Brothers. It was my honor to uh, have that opportunity to spend so much time with him. He was so gracious and uh, just afforded me uh, as much time as I needed. It ended up being two episodes, so that's what we're cutting this one up into. This week and next week, you will hear both of those conversations. Now, for those of you who do not know, Chris Jasper is a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award winner. He's also a German Record Critics Lifetime Achievement Award winner as well. He was awarded a National R&B Society Lifetime Achievement Award. And in 2021, coming up in just about six months or so from this broadcast, Chris Jasper will be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So we're going to get a lot of rich history here. We're going to get a lot of knowledge. We're going to hear the heartbeat and the essence of a man who wrote some absolutely classic hits. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Chris Jasper. We're going to dive in right after we do this. As you know, all of our videos are sponsored by the wonderful people at Vocal. Vocal is the only beverage on the planet designed to soothe, refresh, and restore your voice. If you talk all day like I sometimes do or sing all night like Mr. Jasper does, then you definitely have to get some vocal. You want to go to drinkvocal.com to learn more. Now, I'm telling you, if you know me or talk to me more than two minutes, you know that I'm a child of the 70s. Grew up on the 70s music. My band, Sound Doctrine, references the 70s and our music all the time. And this gentleman right here on the left of your screen greatly contributed to the soundtrack of my life. And I got to tell you, even my beautiful wife, when I said, yo, I am interviewing Chris Jasper today, she said, tell Chris I had a crush on him from the fifth grade through high school. I said, no, I'm not telling him that. <laughs> <laughs> he is absolutely the man. Lifetime, Grammy Lifetime Award winner, BET Lifetime Award winner, even in Germany, Lifetime award winner, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this gentleman was the architect to the Isley Brothers sound, 15 solo albums in his own right, 
continuing to do it, a pioneer, a forefather, and yet still relevant to what's happening right now in 2019. Mr. Jasper, I salute you. Blessings to you. Welcome to the Entree Musician. Well, thank you. And thanks for that really nice uh, introduction. Thank you. Well, you deserve it and more. I got I got to tell you, really, from the time that I was like that high, you can't even see my hand, to now I have loved the Ozzy Brothers. But, you know, like I said, all that 70s stuff was right on point. And when you think about what you hear today in today's music, you helped to pioneer what's going on today. So we got to stop and salute you. I have listened to a hundred interviews or more about the Ozzy Brothers and specifically some things you did. So I'm going to try not to ask the same questions. That's okay. <laughs> it's all right. But, but tell me, how, how are you today? And, and you got the new album, Zoom, and how's everything going with you, sir? Oh, good. Uh, you know, we got the new album, Dance With You, that's that's out now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, you mentioned the 70s because that was uh, really where I learned a lot about songwriting, you know, and uh, production. And um, it was kind of my learning period, you know. But, uh, you know, we had a lot of success, too, during that same time. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Dance With You is kind of um, the sound of the album. It, it kind of has a similar sound because, you know, I used all the, some of the same tools that I used when I was recording some of those songs back then. So uh, I, I do like to keep my, my sound going, you know, yeah. when, when I record a record, you know. Absolutely. So uh, I'm imagining that back then when you were carrying around racks of gear, like the Art 2600, yeah. the Booths and whatnot, you, all of these things are software based now for you, correct? That's true. Yeah, you can you can get a lot of the same sounds, you know, through software, you know, right. or on, you know, uh, presets on synthesizers, you know, um, before you had to search for them, you know, you had right. to program the, the synthesizer yourself, you know. Uh, which, which took a little bit more time, but yeah. uh, it's all in the sound, you know, it's all in what you hear. If you can reproduce what you hear, uh, then, you know, you're, you're on the right track. Well, let's start there then, because uh, the first uh, synth, I'll call it the worm sound that I heard was uh, from uh, Walter Juni Morrison on the funky worm. Mm -hmm. But then you took that and you like flipped it and put it in for the love of you, which is like two opposing forces. But you made that sound relevant, even in a beautiful ballad like that. How did, did you design that sound? Did you create that? Yeah, in a way, I did. Um, I was working with um, Malcolm Cecil. He was the one. He was one of the producers on Stevie Wonder's uh, "Music of My Mind" album, and, and a couple more too. Sure. Uh, but uh, he built uh, Tonto, this this big synthesizer out in L.A. Uh, and it's, it's kind of famous now. It's in some museum right now. Wow. Know? But um, uh, he kind of helped me with the, the, the programming of uh, the For the Love of You sound. Uh, I got it from the ARP 2600, though, which was only part of Tonto. I think I Tonto, Tonto had two of them in, in, you know, in, the, in the synthesizer itself. Wow. But uh, uh, it kind of, kind of, from the 2600, I got that sound. And he kind of helped me, you know, uh, with the programming of it. But after that, 
I started the program, you know, sounds myself uh, using the ARP 2600. But yeah, I, I kind of had um, I, a lot of times when I record, I will record a, a, a part as though it's part of an orchestra. Uh, for example, the, that that for the love of you sound, that the synthesizer sound that's on for the love of you, that could really, you know, if, a, if an orchestra was was playing that, that could be in the woodwind section, you know, uh, maybe an oboe, you know, or you know, a flute or something like that would would, would take that line, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, so um, that's kind of my mindset when I'm doing a record is, uh, especially on ballads. Like you know, maybe, maybe what what part of the orchestra would this uh, part fit into, and try to program the sound not to duplicate an orchestral sound, sure, but to play a part that an orchestral instrument might play. Yes, sir. You know, so that's kind of the thinking that goes along with that. Well, that's 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 cool. I was going to say, I mean, maybe the oboe would play that part, but they wouldn't play it play it as funky. <laughs> right. It would. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't sound the same at all. Right. But, you know, it's it's in the the register. You know, yes, um, it's something that an oboe could possibly play. You know, a, a flute player could play that line, but uh, like you said, it wouldn't be as fluid. Absolutely. You know? uh, the the synthesizer and the keyboard will do a lot more fluid than you know actual player because you know you have the lip you know position and you got the you know your your hand positions too. Uh, it's it's a little more difficult to make it that fluid. You know, absolutely. But, uh, you know, that's kind of how I think when I do ballads, you know, like when I'm layering keyboard parts or if I'm adding a string part, um, I'm thinking about the orchestra. And even when I play my piano parts, you know, it's like, uh, could I could I orchestrate this, you know, this, this song? And, you know, usually my answer is yes, because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm from the old school composition, you know, composers. You know, I studied composition for a long time. Yes. And, uh, since I was like seven years old. Mm -hmm. And I, I, was, I grew up, you know, learning classical music, analyzing, you know, the composers, what they did, you know, what they, their motives, motifs were and, you know, how they put their harmonies together and all those things. So when I approach a song, I just naturally think of it like, okay, this could be an or orchestra, you know, like uh, the things I played on uh, At Your Best, Your Love, you know, the, the keyboard parts, you know. It's it's all you know. Yeah, an orchestra could play this, or Brown Eyed Girl. You know, uh, sure. You know, this this could be an orchestra here. You know, you could get you could you could just reproduce the same thing, but it'd be more, you know, full. It would sound it would sound different, but it would sound good. Understood. You know? Well, I tell you, you got your training. As I understand, you started at seven years old, but eventually you went on to study at Juilliard. Yeah, I studied study composition. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what I was always interested in as as a kid. Um, I even told my uh, teacher, you know, when I first started taking lessons. I think I was about eight years old. Little little guy sitting on the bench, you know. And I said, you know, I would like to be, I would like to write music, you know, because, uh, you know, it would all the, the composer's name would always be on the sheet, you know, um, mm. on on the side of the page. I said, you know, I would I would like to write. And he said, I said, he said, well, you know, you're gonna have to learn a lot. You're gonna have to put in a lot of work, you know. Because, you know, you have to learn about all the instruments, what they can play and, you know, be able to write for them. And I said, you know, yeah, I, I'd like to do that. So he started, he was, a, he was a professor at the conservatory in Cincinnati. And he was, uh, you know, he knew about, you know, orchestration. And, and he was a great pianist, could play anything. And so 
he started to teach me those things when I was a little kid. And uh, by the time I got to Juilliard, um, I kind of knew uh, how to write, but I learned more. You know, I learned more there because I learned, um, you know, the, how, how the different instruments, the ranges. Uh, uh, I, I took a course in orchestration, you know, which is uh, very important uh, when you're writing for the orchestra because um, you don't want to write something that an instrument can't play or it's not, it's not characteristic of that instrument, you know, because it'll sound strange, sure you know. So uh, you learn you learn a lot of different things uh, that maybe you wouldn't learn if you didn't study composition, you know. Understood. Uh, and now you took that jazz, you took that classical, and you married it with jazz because you also studied under Dr. Billy Taylor, correct? Yes, which he was an incredible uh, uh, pianist. I mean, I, I, I've I've never seen anybody's left hand as <laughs> as good as as Billy Taylor. I mean, he was uh, he was just unbelievable. But um, again, uh, learning, because jazz was something I, I, I used to play too. Um, we, we had a group, the three of us younger guys, Ernie, Ernie played drums, Marvin played bass, and I played piano. And we used to play like Ramsey Lewis trio music, uh, you know, things like that, you know, Young Ho Trio. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of our thing. And, and just about anything else that was popular, you know, that we could pick up and play. Uh, but when I studied with uh, Billy Taylor, it gave me a more insight, you know, into the history of jazz and, you know, what what um, a different jazz composers were doing, uh, you know, do, doing like the, the 30s and 40s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was it was a, a great thing to be able to study with him. He was he was very knowledgeable. And uh, that helped me with my composition, because what I did, I took some of the, some of the jazz ingredients even and combine them a little bit with classical to produce some very unique chords that I use, you know, yeah. and that, yeah. that, that creates that sound, you that know, depth. There's yeah. a depth there. Yeah. And, 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 and the lush, the lushness yeah. of some of the chords incorporates cl- a little bit of classical and there's a little bit of jazz in there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always say, you know, uh, there's, th- there's a lot of ways you can approach music. And um, the more you know about music, the, 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 the more you know about music history, uh, you know what other composers have done. Sometimes you can, you can, you can pick up and, and discover your own niche, you know. And that's kind of what I did. I, I, I studied a lot of music and, and analyzed a lot, a lot of music. And that music that I wrote, you know, for the groups and for myself has a lot of history in it, you know. Uh, yeah. Those chords just don't come out of anywhere. Like you mentioned, for the love of you, that starts out with a very unusual chord. You know, the first it's chord, six, is, right? Six degree is on top. Yeah, yeah. And the seventh is on the bottom. You know, but it's the roots G is also in the bass. So it's it's an unusual chord to start with, but it's but it's beautiful because it has, you know, other other degrees of the scale in that chord too. It's like it's like a a, a five note chord. Mm-hmm. You know that that it starts the song with, you know, and then you have the synthesizer on top of it. Exactly. But those chords underneath have a little bit of jazz and classical things all kind of mixed in, and you know it makes it you know really lush uh, kind of sound where you may and and, I, and that's why we didn't use a big band a lot of times mm-hmm. is because the the chords supported the music so well and so fully. Mm-hmm. 
that we really didn't need to add too much. You know? Understood. Now, I was too young to see an Isley show back, you know, between the, well, 73, 83 type time period. I graduated in 83. But so, you know, by the time you guys were doing Fight the Power and all of that, how did you reproduce that sound on stage, though? You know, did you have another keyboard player with you or? Yeah, we would get we would get other band members to support because uh, there were uh, too many parts for just three people to play. Understood. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we needed a drummer. Uh, we usually had like uh, one or two keyboard players, depending on you know the time. Because as we as we got uh, uh, as we toured more, uh, we picked up a couple more musicians just to, just to fill out what I was doing on the keyboards because it, it took a lot. You know, sometimes right. I, I would play like three, four parts. You right. know, and so um, we just needed to fill it out some more. Uh, there, was, there was the one time where we had um, let's see, Ernie play guitar, and then there was another guitar player, and then sometimes I would play guitar. I would switch off on keyboards and play guitar too on stage. I see. So you know, sometimes because like when Ernie would go off into his lead thing, you know, uh, a lot of times I would support the rhythm, you know, with the other guy, you know. So um, as time went on, we picked up a, a few more musicians than we started with. I think we started with like a drummer, a keyboard player, and then as time went on, we picked up another guitar player, you know, and then another keyboard player. So I think it was like maybe seven musicians on the stage mm -hmm. uh, when we were doing those tours. And, um, you know, it, it, it worked out pretty well that way. Now, so Ernie always played drums in the studio? He always, always. played down the drums? Um, with three plus three and some of the Live It Up, Live it up album, uh, George Moreland was playing drums. I now, see. Ernie played on Live It Up on that song. Got it. Because um, I specifically wanted him to play on that song. <laughs> I said, you know, I wrote that song and I said, you know, George is good. I said, but sometimes George, he has a tendency to play a little too much. Gotcha. You know, and, and this song needs a driving you know, steady driving beat to it. Mm -hmm. You got to lay down the drums, you know. Well, Ernie on the hi-hats, being a, being a drummer, that's my, my formative instrument, but his mm -hmm. hi-hat work was just really, I mean, it just got you dancing. He had a lot of feel in that yeah. hi-hat, just swinging. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said, there's, there, there's um, what they call, we used, what we used to call like a lock-in drummer who could just lock into a, a beat and stay there, you know, and right. keep the rhythm, you know, solid. Uh, that's what I wanted on Live It Up. And um, the, that was accomplished because that song kind of, it took us into another uh, place that we weren't in. We weren't in the clubs heavy, you know. You yeah. know, that lady was big and it was a pop record, you know, it was R&B pop too. But then when we did Live It Up, that took us into the clubs. Yeah. And 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 R and B and kind of kind of expanded our audience again, you know. Uh, so that was a big a big album for us. It had Hello Simi on it too. Yeah, right. Fan, <laughs> definitely a fan. Now, now, do do me a favor. First, before I ask you this question, I want to walk back a little bit between the classical and jazz components that you placed in your music because uh, the only other keyboard player of note 
Stevie Wonder notwithstanding, but Bernie Worrell with classical and jazz approach was just a master. So to to hear the dynamics of the two of you coming into play and what what was going on on the funk with the bass and the drum lock and you guys creating all of these colors on top is what makes your music essential listening for today's generation. It's essential. But I, I want to ask this question, though, because I know that uh, from the uh, composition standpoint, you and primarily Ernie uh, were the bedrock of the sound, the Isley Brothers sound. And in composition, can you walk us through the construction of an inception or maybe how you uh, received an influence about a song uh, in that Isley Brother era and said, OK, well, hey, me and Ernie got together and did this. Walk us through what that looked like. Pick well, any usually, usually what happened was um, I would get an idea usually from practicing. Um, you know, if I was, if I was, because I used to practice all the time. And if I could, got onto a chord progression that I really liked, I would say, okay, let me save that and start building on it. You know what I mean? Um, that's, that's how ideas usually came. Like, you know, For the Love of You came that way, you know, for example just from practicing. And I said, you know, that's the, 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 a set, what I call the a section or the course I had first. Mm-hmm. So I said, that, that really is, is, is a solid progression. Let me work on this. Let me work on, you know, a verse section, you know, a bridge, you know, whatever. Um, let me work on a melody, you know, craft a melody into that chord progression. Um, and that's how, that's how I would build, an idea, usually from practicing. Now, sometimes uh, I could get a melody, you know, um, but it usually was just a melody without a lyric. I see. You know what I mean? Uh, the lyric would come last, usually. That's how we worked on For the Love of You, too. It was, uh, I had the, the, the melody, but, you know, we had to work the lyrics into it. You know? Did you write the lyrics as well, or did yeah, one of the I, older I, brothers? I wrote the lyrics. Um, Ernie, I think, wrote a, a verse. Also, you know, he, he was he was working on the lyrics with me. Uh, but the core of the the song, uh, the chord progression, and, and all that, and the bass line, and I, I had all that stuff, you know, uh, uh, down because we were recorded on a on what, what was a TAC recorder. You know, yeah. it was like a four track. Sure. So, um, yeah, we recorded all the parts down and, you know, that, that, that Moog line was on there too. That was already on there, the, the synthesizer line. So we just, we just worked on the lyrics, you know, and, um, that was the last thing to come was the lyrics. Mm. And, um, but that's kind of how it would build. It would build from a, a seed, like a chord progression, uh, and then working on it from there. Sometimes, um, like Ernie would have, he would have a seed of an idea, you know, and um, like, for example, when, when, when Fight the Power was created, um, I was upstairs. We were at Masazi's house. I was upstairs and I heard Ernie playing the guitar part downstairs, like the, uh, the, 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 the A section guitar parts. I said, this sounds pretty good, you know. I said, hmm. And I, said, and I went downstairs and said, Ernie, play that part again, you know. And then he started playing it and then I got the, the, the bass, the bass pro because I was, I would program that same synthesizer for bass sounds, you know, the 2600. 
So, like, so I programmed the bass thing, and I start playing the bass, the bass riff. I don't know what made me play it, <laughs> but it, it like gelled. It like, you know, it was like this, you know. And so I said, okay, we can, we can, let's put this down on the uh, on the recorder, you know, because you know we had a really funky thing going there. Exactly. So um, it, it it happens that way too. You know what I mean? Um, that that's the one of us would get a seed of an idea, and then we would work it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just so happens that that's how that's how the majority of of the songs were written. Wow. Well, you you two were a hit making machine. I mean, there was a consistency and just hit after hit after hit. And one of the only bands that I I know maybe maybe cameo can function, but the Isley Brothers could take the straight up funk and the straight up ballad. It didn't matter which way you came and just killed it was that intentional or is that organic was that something that you really had to work on and say now we're going to do the funk dude now we're going to do the ballad i mean how how did that happen well it's it's like i said it it just depends on what ideas we had at the time Mm -hmm. uh i remember uh writing showdown in the dressing room you know because we would have our guitars uh, the guys would come in and tune our guitars and make sure everything is in tune the roadies you know yeah um I, I was the guitar that I played on stage. I was just, you know, making sure it was in tune, and then I started, you know, filling out some chords, and you know, you know, came up with the riff for Showdown. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. The, right there in the dressing room, I say, "Hey, that sounds that sounds good. That, I'll work on that when we get back." You know, and it's like um, funk. I think is something, uh, and, I, and I spoke about this before. It's some. It's something that is internal, um, and. I don't know if you can actually teach it or not. Uh, if right. you don't have, if you don't have that rhythm, first, the first thing you have to have is rhythm. Yeah. And if you don't have rhythm, it's very difficult to play funk. You know, True. it's almost impossible. It really True. is impossible to play it, and it's it's something that you just have. I think it's innate. Right. I really do, because you know you have great musicians, and Sometimes you get them, you know, you say, hey, man, play this, play this riff. And they have such difficulty playing it. They can't do it. You know, and it's like, wow, man, you know, this guy's a great musician, but he can't play funk, you know. And but and, and funk, you just have to have that feeling in you, you know. And, uh, and you know, it, not to take anything away from Marvin, because, you know, Marvin was good. Uh, yeah. Marvin Isley. Mm-hmm. But there was some riffs that he had, he would have problems with, you know, and, you know, sometimes I would play the bass part and sometimes Ernie would play the bass part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a rhythmic thing, you know, yeah. uh, and um, the syncopation sometimes, you know, like, like tell me we need it again. You know, I, I played the bass on there, mm. you, know, you know, and, and, you know, um, there's a few other songs that I did too, you know. Uh, no, the little, bass, the actual bass and not the, the bass. bass. Yeah. The yeah. bass. Yeah, the, the thump and plunking thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> bass solos. You know, I, I used to play. You know, okay, so, who played bass on "Take Me to the Next Phase"? I did. That, that was synthesizer. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that was another one that came. Mm-hmm. You know, Ernie had Ernie had he was playing a bass line. You know, at first, and I said, Ernie, you know what? I said, I'm really not feeling that. I mean, you know, go out to play the drums. I said, let me let me play play you what I'm feeling. You know, and he started with the drums. You know, I gave him a little, 
you know, intro with the drums, and I came, boom, boom, boom. I don't know what, right. you know, I don't know what made me play it, yeah. But <laughs> felt that way, you know what I mean? Right. Felt, it felt like that's what should be on the bottom, you Absolutely. know? And, um, and that's what I mean about innate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I said, I don't know what made me play the bass thing on Fight the Power. Right. But it felt like it should be moving under there, you know? You know, the bass should be moving. It shouldn't be, you know, solid. And over time, you know, a lot of other people started to make the synthesizer bass moving on the songs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It became more of a thing to, to do. Absolutely. Because before it was kind of just solid, you know, plus yes. solid bass line. Right. Um, right. You know, once I start moving that bass like that, you know, a lot of people say, hey, you know, <laughs> I think that works. You know, then they start doing too. Definitely. So it was, um, it's got to be in you. You know, this funk has to be in you. It has to be something like, almost like sports, you know, like some sports you can't make a player do a certain thing. You know what I mean? They have, they, everybody has different talents. Right. Uh, but it just so happens that the funk man and, you know, and, and, and I do have to say it was the three of us, but it, it, it really started, like, take me to the next phase. That started with, you know, me and Ernie, Ernie playing drums and me playing that bass synthesizer. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I put some more keyboards in there and I think Ernie put a guitar part on there and that was it, you know. And it was it was funky, man. Absolutely. And, but it's funny, we didn't, we didn't play it in the order that it ended up in. We had to edit the tape, you know. I, we... we you know, I took the I took the engineer down to the studio, man. And we 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 like edited that thing like eight times, <laughs> get it, you know, in the proper order. You know, we had to, and that was with the two inch tapes. You know, oh yeah, yeah, razor razor blades. Yeah, <laughs> so we were splicing like crazy, but we finally got it in the right order, and you know, put the crowd in there, and that that was that was a project. Technically, the next phase was a project, but it it really turned out, you know, really good. It turned out fantastic, man. And and speaking of uh, showdown, I got I got to do this because yeah, you know, I grabbed a couple, you know, and, and there the brother is right there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and here, yeah, man. I mean, it's excellent, excellent stuff. But here's the thing: so you got this funk groove like showdown, and then number two is groove with you, and you go. Yeah, I think that's the magic of the Isley Brothers sound. Is like again. Wherever you're coming from the funk zone or you're coming from the ballad, it's a complete thought. It's original. Yeah, that was that was the thing that being able to do both, um it it it, it, it just increased what material we could do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because like you have maybe some groups or some a single artists, you know, they some are balladeers, you know, they do mostly sure. ballads. And then you have the funk bands that do just, you know, mostly funk. Right. right? But um, when you can do both, it increases the amount of material you can do. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And uh, that, that was the good thing. We could do a lot of different things, you know, with our music, and, and which I do right now. I do a lot of stuff with my music now. I don't know if you heard the song Man Up, but I did. That's, that's, <laughs> that's back to that, you know, funk. Again, you know, which, you know, I was a, I was a major part of that music, you know, and and that's what I wanted to show with that album, the one. Yeah, because I played, I played all the instruments, I played the bass in there, you know, the, the kind of similar to what I was playing on uh, some of the songs. I played the guitar, 
you know, like I, like I want to be with you, that song, how it starts off with the guitar. That's me playing. That's me oh, doing that, with that effect on there. That's, I'm playing that. Wow. And so, like, you know, I don't know, people may not know how much I was in that music. Mm. You know I mean, yeah, because it wasn't, they didn't, they didn't put that on the albums. Sure. You know? Sure. Uh, because, you know, they say, oh, well, Chris plays keyboards, you know, Ernie plays guitar and he plays drums and then Marvin plays bass. And that's how they were listed mm-hmm. on the records. But that's not necessarily what happened in the studio. It I, was play just... guitar, I play guitar and don't say goodnight. Get out, really? Boom, boom, boom. You know, play it with my fingers, you know, because give it a soft, the soft tone. Yeah. Um, I was doing, I was doing all kinds of stuff on those records. Amazing. You know? I would mix it. <laughs> I would be. In, I would mix the stuff, you know. Make sure you know with the engineers. That's back then before automation. A lot of those. Oh things. yeah. And so you know we were like, you know, tape and you know making marks on the on the uh, the tracks. You know what I mean? Making sure, okay, you got to pull it down here, pull this up here. You know, then the assistant would have his 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 things, and the other engineer would have his. It was it was it was crazy mixing that stuff. Yeah. You know? What, what did you did you did you enjoy the entire process? Was there, yeah, that's I, that's my favorite part of the music business, is creating new music. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing like it to me. Uh, you know, to have an idea, record it, and it be something good enough to finish. <laughs> you know what I mean? To <laughs> finally master. I mean, there's nothing like that to me. I mean, it's it's, it's the best thing in the world. Now, how did you enjoy the touring aspect? How did you enjoy that? Oh, it was cool, too. It was cool, too, to see the reaction, you know, the, how people react to something that you recorded. You know, because I mean, you know, they, were they feeling the same vibe? And most of the times they were, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's that's a great experience, too. It's just after a while, it gets it, it physically gets to you, you know, like one town, another town, another town, you know. And it's not the shows, it's the travel that kind of wears you down. Mm-hmm. You know, like midway through it, it's like, okay, <laughs> Need a little break. time out, time out, you know, because it's, you know, it's rough. Well, let me ask, do you have a favorite uh, show, a favorite, you know, that, that moment when you were on stage and you remember it was just, just cemented in your mind that night? Yeah, I, I remember, um, the thing that stands out to me is is Madison Square Garden. Uh, we played there. We played there like six times, and there was there were sellouts. And mm-hmm. just you know, just the because there's everybody's at those concerts. You're gonna get lots of press. Um, you got you know the jocks in in, in New York. You know, uh, I remember Frankie Crocker was Frankie there. Frankie Crocker, you know, yeah, was uh, <laughs> the MC. You know. And it was just the total vibe. I mean, the place was rocking, man. You know, we had next technician next phase, man, and, and the place was like hopping up and down. You know, wow. And it's um, that was the place to play. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If you Absolutely. could play the garden and sell out the garden, you know, that was the place to play. And that, that really that, that that will always stand out. You know, as one of the big big shows. All right, let's flip it. What was your least favorite night? Maybe it was in the middle of the tour and you thought, oh, 
<laughs> what was the the night that you thought, you know, I really want to be in the studio right now? <laughs> well, there was a time we did a jazz festival in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, a lot of people on the show, uh, uh, Parliament, Funkadelis, they were on the show with us, you know, with the mothership and all. Mm-hmm. And um, we came on right before them because they said, well, you know, if we come on later, then, you know, it's going to be like, an hour and a half before we can get that mothership and everything out of the way. And it's going to be too late and people are going to leave. So they said, Oh, cause yeah, we'll go on before because <laughs> we don't really want to risk that. Right. So, um, we got about a minute into fight the power because we started off the song of fight the power and the power cut off. Okay. <laughs> the electricity cut off for about a minute, which seemed like forever. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So, it was like very, very awkward, you know, and then it cut back on. And then, you know, it's funny because when it cut back on, we were, we was we were all still playing, you know, together, you know oh. what I mean? Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody kept playing their part. <laughs> it just cut back on. <laughs> but, it was, but it was like, you know, oh, no, is it ever going to come on? Wow. Well, so lights and everything went off. Finally. I know the lights were on. The oh, lights are on. I wish, no the lights I wish the lights were off. <laughs> <laughs> but the lights were still on. Oh, I see. And, wow. Uh, but man, that was like, it seemed like so long. But then, you know, <laughs> after that, the show was okay, you know. But it's just one of those things, you know, things happen out there. Absolutely. You can't, you can't control everything, you know. <laughs> Not at all. Now, now, uh, let me ask you, with respect, I asked about uh, the construction of the song and is from its inception to completion. But with respect to what's going on around you, um, we know that Marvin Gaye was influenced by the Vietnam War when he uh, wrote What's Going On. I mean, the times, the political uh, era in the seventies, were there anything like that? You know I mean? Because Spike Lee used fight the power, you know what I mean? He set a standard when he used that for uh, school days, but with respect to, as you were writing, were there outside influences or things that was going on that you said, I need to write a song about this. And what was, what, you know, what could we get from that when we were just hearing it on the radio and we didn't know that that's what influenced you or Ernie to write that. You know, I, I think the song Fight the Power was um, influenced about things that were going outside, you know, of a person's control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's why the lyric is written that way. Uh, a lot of R&B artists in particular were having trouble, you know, crossing over or getting on, you know, top, top 40 stations. Uh, uh, they had to have, like, so many sales, you know, like it had to be a hot seller. And then it also had to have... Um, you know, a lot of airplay, you know, for them to even consider playing it. So um, one of, one of the, the bridge and fight the power kind of reflects that, that mm-hmm. what was going on with, with music. And they record. say my music's too loud to try talking about it. My music, they say my music's too loud. I tried talking about it, the big run around. Okay, so, so go on the thing that would get you banned from radio because there's a word coming up that they would just That's sit right. you off the bat. And that happened. That happened by just by chance. The uh, word, the word was nonsense on the paper. I, oh, is that right? Yeah, we wrote nonsense on the paper, right? Uh, when Ronald got in there and started singing it. He said BS, right? right. 
And we said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know what he just said? And so we, we, we stopped for a minute and we, we kind of talked about it and said, uh, and then, you know, kind of said, well, you know what? That's kind of what people would say. You know, that's, that's what they would actually say. Because, uh, you know, the frustration aspect, you know, that's probably what they would say. So I said, you know, let, you know, we, we decided to do a, 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 a edited version, mm-hmm. which had a beep in it. That was for mm-hmm. the, the 45. But for the album, we said, just leave it. Just leave it on the album version, you know. Yeah. Um, and if they want to bleep it, you know, on the radio, when they play the album, let them bleep it. But it's funny. It seemed like something that Top 40 wouldn't play. Mm-hmm. But they were the first ones to play it. Amazing. WABC in New York. I I never forget. I was driving in my car, and for some reason I was switching around. I, I switched. It. I said, "Let me see what the ABC is playing." The, the Fighter Power had just come out. It was just come out that week. I, I and the, the next record was Fight the Power. I turned around. I said, "I gotta go. I gotta tell Ernie this." I turned <laughs> around. I went back. I, I said, "Ernie." You know what I just, I just heard Fight the Power on WABC. Wow. On WABC, which, 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 you know, it was hard to get on ABC, you know. They played 13 records, that's it. <laughs> and it was like, I know we got a hit now. And they did their own edit. They didn't use our beep. We just had like a, um, a, a bleep in there, mm-hmm. in our version. They, mm-hmm. they had a musical thing they put, edit, they did to it. Wow. Whoa, they even did their own edit. I said that you know it's got to be a hit, and that's that's the album. That's the only album that was number one, top forty. Amazing, he is amazing. So, were there any other records that uh, had? I know Harvest for the World, um, beautiful. Yeah, that got a lot of play, yeah. But the, I'm saying you know of the, of chart chart numbers, yeah. yeah. That was the only top forty number one album. Oh, understood. Yeah. Yeah, I understood that. Uh, I, I was I was talking about the you know the influence of what's going on around you. I know Harvest of the World with yeah. respect to homelessness, with respect mm-hmm. to the disparity, you know. Uh, so you had a lot of they, without being quote unquote message songs. There were a lot of influences from mm-hmm. societal issues that made you sit down and go, "Hey, let's do this." Yeah, I, I think that's you know well there was a trend of that happening in the, in the sixties and seventies, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like you mentioned Marvin Gaye and, you know, uh, some other artists, you know, uh, even, even Stevie Wonder had some songs, you know, that had, absolutely, you know, living for the city. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was one of the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it was kind of a thing to do, you know, if you had something important to say, you know, uh, uh, Seals and Croft, you know, four dead in Ohio. You yeah. Know? Right. You know, it was like, but if you, if if you have something important to say, yeah, and 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 a good way to say it, sure. in other words, you know, a, a good vehicle, a good song, uh, to say it, and that was that was happening back then, and um, there was certainly enough circumstances to pull from too, definitely, you know, that that you could draw an idea from, definitely, and un- unfortunately, you know, there were too many, you know, yeah. uh, coming out of the turbulent sixties. Yeah, yeah, I mean. But but it's it's it, I think it it helps in a way if you can do that it helps your career in a way 
if you can, uh, uh, because it helps you connect with people a little bit more. Sure. You know, if you can talk about uh, something that everybody's concerned about or, or there's something that everybody um, is looking at, you know, yeah. uh, that kind of helps you connect with the audience a little better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I am so happy that we agreed to have two segments because it seems like we're just getting started and our first half hour is gone already. Yep, that's it. I knew you were going to love it. I knew you were going to appreciate the opportunity to listen to the gems, (laughs) the treasures of how they constructed all of that wonderful music that really held the 70s and the 80s together. And so next week, we're going to do the same thing. Don't miss out. You want to hear the continuation of our conversation with Lifetime Grammy Award Achievement winner, Mr. Chris Jasper. My name is Jerry B. I want you to tell everybody you know about The Entree Musician. Tell 14 people you don't. Reach out to me directly at the Entree Musician at gmail.com. You can text me at 330-718-JERE. Area code 330. Get it to me. We'll engage together. We also generously receive donations of any amount. The cash app information is in the show notes. Any amount you give will be greatly appreciated and absolutely helps the work that we're doing here at the Entree Musician. My name is Jerry B. I trust and pray you'll be here next week. I plan to. I am the Entree Musician, and so are you. God bless.